Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. A few days ago, Justin and I spoke with Trip Fuller and Thomas J. Ord from Homebrewed Christianity and the Center for Open and Relational Theology, respectively. On February 9th and 10th, they're hosting a two-day event at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey, that's called God After Deconstruction. There'll be people like Catherine Keller, Bruce Epperly, John Tatamanil, and Alexis Lilly coming out as well and contributing to the conversation. We are sponsoring the event, and so, yeah, Justin and I will be there hanging out, trying not to look awkward, and uh, corrupting the youth if all goes well. I think we might try to record some stuff while we're there. I'm not sure. We've got to think about what that's going to look like. But anyway, it was a great conversation where we unpack what God After Deconstruction is really all about, um, including a lot of the, I don't know, cultural things going on in the background, and how I think they're wanting to put forward a, I don't know if it's a third option, but an option that isn't you know, just some kind of reconfigured orthodoxy. It's not reducible to an MSNBC ethic. And sidesteps, you know, the whole deconstruct yourself right out of the building option. So I do think it's a conversation that's going to be potentially really helpful for people in that space. And, you know, wrestling with those kinds of questions. You'll find a link to the event in the show notes where you can register. And yeah, it'd be great to see some people come out and and just hang out with us. I forgot to mention this last time, but we've kicked off our reading group looking at Deleuze's 1968 text, Difference in Repetition. We had our first session a couple weeks ago where we were looking at the preface and introduction, uh, which it was great. It went well. It's free to sign up, so if you have any interest in that, it's not too late to jump in. We're really just getting started. The Learning Circle is sponsored by the Cobb Institute and the Center for Process Studies. And if you've ever thought about reading some Deleuze, but you know, thought it, maybe it seemed too, too intimidating, this is a great way to tackle it with a group of like-minded and interesting people. And I'll leave the link to where you can sign up for that in the show notes. Thanks again to Tripp and Tom for the great conversation and for doing this. We love you guys. All right. What happens when a, when someone from a trailer park in Southwest Texas gets a PhD in philosophy, and uh, and like his bonnet and hardcore Marxist too? Hey, yeah. Tom. Hey guys. What's up, man? Hello. Well, I was sorry I'm a little late. I can you see my heated blanket? You have Got a heated myself? blanket. Oh. Yes. Tom, I didn't know you were that old. I know. Eat a blanket I, for a podcast? Yeah, Are you I, really outside? I took off my Snuggie for the event, but I guess I could have left it on. I am old, man. I can't, my body doesn't circulate heat like it used to. Ugh. That's what we need. We need some uh, homebrewed Christianity uh, Snuggies. Mm. Oh. 
thinking where like you put it on and it gives you a beer gut even if you don't have one (laughs) but then if you do you're like oh no no no, it's it's just part of the design yeah um (laughs) like you get this where you you can heat up you can add heated inserts into your snuggie you know as you get older the swag the swag we need yeah just one you know the average average listener just uses one heating pad uh, like Tom, but you like, if you get older, we got room for it to grow yeah. where you could slide it in two or three. Yeah. But, it, but then on, un- ironically later, later on, it becomes like the official cultist garb. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, good to see you guys. Two of my favorite theists in one place. This is amazing. Do what we can. Uh, Tom, have you seen uh, Rick Roderick philosophy lectures before? No. All right, that was our first topic we were discussing. Gotcha. Though yeah. I want to send it to you because just the the skill at which he's a lecturer and you get done and realize what he got covered, but you were entertained like while you were watching stand up. Yeah. Yeah. The suspenders go a long way. I feel like there's an entire generation of Americans who like learned about Nietzsche and Kierkegaard through him. <laughs> like because i think a great didn't he wasn't it a great courses he was part of that whole program yeah, great yeah. Courses series yeah where they've got the little like horn fanfare in the beginning or whatever it is <laughs> it's like you know you're about to get some knowledge <laughs> dropped on you all right so the the occasion for us being here is that you guys are having a an event at drew university in a few weeks called God after deconstruction and, you know, people like John Tatamanil and Catherine Keller and Bruce Epperly and I forget Alexa's last name. I think it's, uh, she, Lily. Yeah. 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 yeah Lily. She'll be there. And I know we're, we're going to talk more about, you know, the event as such and how, how people can register for that. But I was kind of curious, maybe just to get into the conversation, what kicked that idea off? What, why are you doing this? What's the conversation that you, uh, <laughs> that you're hoping to open up here? I mean, it's pretty obvious that a whole lot of, especially ex-evangelicals, but also Catholics, folks outside the Christian tradition have grown dissatisfied with the pet answers they've been given, have been hurt and harmed by church leaders and institutions. And, you know, they're going through what in popular cultures come to be called deconstruction. And Tripp and I are enough evangelists <laughs> to think that, um, what they're going through is legitimate, but there's better and other ways to think. And so that's kind of the heart of God after deconstruction. Is that how you see it, Trip? Yeah. And the and I think for those that are, you know, in the broad process relational types, Tom and I probably interact with people that haven't read Whitehead in a class for credit uh, the <laughs> most. And one of the things that kind of consistently comes up is how the images of the divine that generate faith change in some way, like where your conceptual vision of ultimacy or uh, your relationship to religious community and stuff gets thrown in flux, like those kinds of issues all show up and they are the same kind of things, process relational types roll their eyes at and get frustrated, or you have plenty of people from the radical theological tradition on a lot and they have similar criticisms and such. Uh, because there's a lot of gods that need atheists. And then what happens after that conversation? What do you do for those of us that still want to try to use the symbol and concept of God, right? Like 
Tom and I do it that way, but there's a lot of space that's there when, when you, when you move past certain beginning points and the project itself is kind of centered on a number of different surveys I've done of, you know, people that listen to the podcast or gotten people from a bunch of podcasts that will, you know, hang out at theology beer camp to, you know, solicit input from their listeners. Tom has been, sending out emails requesting like, oh, what was the question that generated faith transition and stuff like that? And there's been a rather dramatic shift in American religious context since uh, really 2016, where, yes, there are those like age old questions, you know, of like the problem of evil and suffering or those kind of things, which, you know, are still on the list. But then there's the public performance of people that theoretically call the cross bearing one savior and Lord perform cross building, be it like the response to George Floyd or the rise of Christian nationalism, or like the most deaf community to ecological suicide. Like these kinds of issues are showing up ones that have a very material element to them. And so part of the project was to go, what happens when you host a space to try to use the God word again and those big conceptual theological questions that are there, say around evil and suffering or pluralism or whatever, that kind of modernity's occasion and the material ethical ones that the church in the way it's embodied and engaged in the world has led to its own legitimacy crisis, right? Like you can only take seriously someone saying good news if you at least have a version in your head where they might at least intend good news. Uh, and when there's yeah. this, this escalation of people from like a whirlpool of ugly Christianity from 2016, the whirlpool like got tighter, tighter, tighter and faster. And more and more people are flying out just because they like turn against the tide and go. Yeah. But like when you say all lives matter, it kind of comes across weird right out or are you sure, you know, like we shouldn't just have like ardent support for Israeli occupation of Palestine out or, you know, like, have you ever had a gay friend, you know, and in, in those issues are there as well. So like part of what we are hoping to do and uh, something like God after deconstruction is try to wrestle with different constructive options that take those questions seriously, but still want the symbolic power of something like God or, you know, axiological commitments or the, the depth dimension that generates value or, you know, there's a lot of ways you could talk about it in other episodes with nerdy people. Um, but the experience is really grounded in the Christian tradition because the church's counter testimony towards itself right now is uh, obnoxiously effective. <laughs> I think, though, one of the things you, you hit on that I forgot to hit on, and that is that we wanted to have a place in which people who didn't have a sophisticated theological vocabulary could understand what we were actually saying. And if they wanted to buy into it, you know, uh, your podcast is one of the, my favorite podcasts, but you guys talk at a level that 99% of the people can't understand. You guys probably know that. But what do you do with the person who's gone through a deconstructive experience over some of the issues that Tripp just mentioned, and they think they have an either or, either the omnipotent asshole that they want to leave behind or absolutely nothing at all. And they have these intuitions about goodness and transcendence and, 
and but they don't know how to articulate it well. So one of the goals of this God After Deconstruction event is to try to help those people see there are other alternatives between just the two that they think they have before them. Yeah, so it sounds like there's really kind of two groups in mind here. There's folks who are kind of approaching this constellation of problems or questions from a more traditional religious space, right? So they're kind of more interested in the theological thrust of, of the conversation. And then you have folks who are more interested in the kind of ethico-political side of it that maybe you're looking for a way to kind of hold on to that, like you said, trip that kind of symbolic language. Is that is that right? Yeah, both sides of that like deeply interest me mm -hmm. uh, and Tom in lots of things where we've done. Like we're doing these events like and like the one at Drew, obviously you can see all the other super nerds that are coming to hang out with us. You know, one of the things we're hoping to do there is even test with people that we have a lot of common commitments to and kind of broadly process relational type things, the the way we're hoping to communicate uh this in a larger way, right? And so I anticipate, you know. Catherine or John being like, well, I don't know if I'd put it that way. Why are you doing it this way? Yeah, of course. And and sure. in, in in some sense, trying to go, we are wanting to articulate this to to a larger audience than my podcast or yours normally goes to, and that kind of thing. Yeah. So there's like that, like we want to learn, and even their experiences, say in the classroom, or someone like Alexis and congregation in New York, and these kind of things. The other side is if if our trends continue. Even with the rise of the nuns, the number of children born in this country who will be born into a home where the parents identify as Christian uh, is still going to be a majority of kids uh, for another 50 to 60 years because of birth rates and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so one element of it, if like trying to articulate a perspective that's bigger than the Christian tradition, but in it, uh, it is really to go. Uh, the next 50 years where we figure out if the planet's going to work well and whether like we can move beyond our economic relations that generate oppression or our ideological framings that continue to do all these things. Like we want to articulate uh, some kind of faithful expression of the Christian tradition uh, that resonates with something bigger, but also gives people who are leaving behind that space a reason to linger on those experiences that were life-giving in the past, right? So part of it is like testing where it coheres with something broader, um, yeah. but also th that maybe it's a more intellectually informed and uh, prophetically sensitive account of the Christian tradition for those that, you know, feel like they're being excommunicated for taking Jesus seriously, you know? Yeah, and all those things are serious. I kind of hear what's getting centered in the conversation or emphasized our values. And then, uh, you know, the, the other stuff is kind of accidental almost, or maybe you would, you know, argue with that, but I could have the same question of values, you know, sans theology. So to talk about values, what's the value of continuing the, um, I don't know, the tradition, I suppose, using this kind of language, especially in a way that I think one of the things you said kind of gave me the impression that God after deconstruction is kind of synonymous with God after atheism, or maybe I, maybe I have that wrong. I think it's going to vary from person to person here. I mean, some people go through a deconstructive process, and at the end of it, they don't want anything. They want to get rid of that God word and the God ideas and 
and um, be done with that because they've been burned or it doesn't make sense to them intellectually. And, you know, Tripp and I aren't going <laughs> to try to evangelize those folks and somehow prove that there's a God and that sort of thing. That's not what we're about. But we find, at least I find, I'm guessing Tripp is in the same boat. There's a lot of people who aren't willing to give up the God word, aren't willing to give up transcendence, still have these intuitions about morality, about beauty, about love, and they don't have a framework within which to put those things, except a framework that has something to do with theology. And that's where process open and relational theology, I think, can be so helpful because we can tell them, yeah, the views of God you've been given really do suck. You really should abandon them. There really are good reasons to deconstruct those things. But there's another way to think about God that helps you retain those deep values of beauty, love, goodness, justice, etc. And in a way that makes rational sense. You don't have to throw out your brain to be a part of this movement, to be a part of this way of thinking. My, my hunch is that that's the majority of people who are deconstructing. And obviously, people are in different spots, and they'll end up in different you know, places. I don't know if you ever end up if you're in process. But so that's, I think, at least when I think about our crowd, I think that's a major part of it. Yeah. So I, I wonder, Tripp, you said something about the, it was like the power of the symbol of God or something. And something I've been I've been thinking is that around this language of God after deconstruction, um, I think a like maybe a, a cynical reading of that would be that an event like this is designed to to save God from deconstruction, that the goal is to rescue the divine yeah, yeah. from from ideas that would would otherwise kill it. Um, and so I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like, what do you see as savable and this is a question for for mm -hmm. both of you why why do we need that symbol of god for example i come out of the the radical theology tradition so a tradition particularly in the 60s of people who were like yeah we're going to keep jesus but we're going to kind of ditch god for the most part um mm -hmm. in different ways um and so what is it about the symbol of god cuz you know, I could see somebody arguing something like, um, yeah, I can have the good without God and I can have love without God and I can have forgiveness without God. What is the the godness of that? Uh, what is what is sort of worth holding on to there in, in your perspective? Mm -hmm. OK, so there see three things come to mind. So I'll try to say them short and then you can pick whichever direction you all want to go or Tom wants to respond to. Um, when I think about the word God, I, there's this quote in Catherine Keller's most recent book. What matters endlessly is what we earth dwellers do together, what we embody, not what we say about God, but how we do God, right? And so part of God after deconstruction is how we do God after, right, taking seriously these questions. Some of them are intellectual questions, which could, you know, I can think of multiple answers to, right? Like every time I taught the philosophy of religion class at the University of Edinburgh, the students would have giant debates of whether or not like a concept like value, love, goodness, all these things has any real traction without the cultural legacy of a deity or without the ontological weight of a deity. And there are answers yes and no to each one. Um, Tom and I might even like have different answers about it and such, but the, the need in our cultural moment to problematize the concept of God so that it doesn't function as a placeholder uh, for ugly expressions of power, normalizing 
injustice and oppression and these kinds of things uh, as we're hoping to model as people of faith, as theologians that educate ministers, just like Catherine or John or Bruce, Alexis does it from the pulpit, right? What we're hoping to do is to take the problematizing seriously. It is a cultural moment. And yes, that means deconstructions being used culturally differently than we would do it 10 years ago on Homebrewed when Caputo would come on and talk about it and we'd have a whole class. Yeah, and I know that and it irritates me. And sometimes I lecture people about it because I get irritated. But underneath that, right, there is this cultural moment. And I think this is a place that the process, relational tradition, and radical theology take seriously, coming really out of Tillich and his theology of culture is that for too long, religious traditions imagined that they had a collection of answers to things that weren't historically contingent and emerged in the intricacies of everything that was tied up in their history. And then what do you do with theology is, well, you tell the people probably in Christendom what their real problem is, sin, and then you tell them the solution depends on your denomination. And that's what you call theology is then like gatekeeping and protecting and sitting there, right? Until it goes, well, that's not even really Protestant anymore. The Protestant principle, right? It's like what Luther did to Christendom and the kind of like Catholic cultural dominance is expose it to the radical side of the gospel, a God who cannot be contained in finite contingent language or reduced to something that could be contained within a particular tradition and such. But he didn't collapse uh, the kind of decentering ultimacy uh, where he ends up using language that, I mean, even in the question before, Matt hinted at, right, the God beyond God or the God after theism and atheism binary functions. And, and I think that different parts of the process relational group handle that question differently. I think there are like fun interpretations of Whitehead that if your context and such is so uncomfortable with the word God, you can generate a concept of the imminent plane uh, that provokes both the generation of value and your response to possibility and the way you internalize critiques of whatever just happened on behalf of potential value in the future without essentializing and making a platonic concept of value to ring for all time. Amen. You know, that is all possible. (laughs) You know, I'm, and I'm sure when everyone goes to hang out with y'all reading Deleuze uh, for the center for process studies, that less superior reading of Whitehead will be explored thoroughly with the friends that have told me all the way through graduate school at Claremont uh, that I should be like them. They probably told Tom the same thing, you know, enough years earlier, he has a Snuggie on while we're doing this interview, but those two things are not unrelated. I just want to they're not, but, but, you know, underneath both of them, God after deconstruction, here's like the funny philosophical way I'm thinking of putting it. Y'all tell me if this works or not. Uh, most God language is a substance abuse problem. That is really the big deal, be it radical theology or process relational. It, if you use God and that concept as a substance abuse problem, it's messed up. Is, that a, right is there, that a pun? Is that a pun? Yeah, it's yeah, okay. reductive metaphysics. Substance-based metaphysics sucks, and it generates a whole orientation for how you have conversations about value, truth, goodness. Ones where the way you relate to questions and such uh, is uh, it's never allowed to problematize what you're be, what's being seized. And I think that reality is something in Caputo's newest book, he reclaims panentheism as a form of radical theology, and it's a different form of panentheism than the process types would normally do. Mm. Uh, one of the things that really, it really clicked, one of the Venn diagrams for process and, and radical theology 
is the sheer abhorrence to what happens uh, when you substantialize ultimacy. And that's actually an abuse to what's harbored in the symbol God. Uh, I think, obviously, a God that is revealed in the cross-bearing, executed prophet uh, problematizes it. And that's another place where you can see in Whitehead's work and in radical theology, there's connections. You can see it in the relationship of Altizer and John Cobb uh, in, in those early days. But if we think of it in that metaphysical sense about the imminent plane, uh, regardless of like even the visions of ultimacy, the moment you substantialize what's going on and what's happening, what's being revealed in questions and such, it generates idolatry, right? And so what God after deconstruction is, is kind of a placeholder for what you do with questions that should be the, the situation for theological reflection. And the solution isn't reorientation uh, towards the perfected system, but an invitation uh, yeah. to a different form of material engagement. And that, and that's why I think that religions with this kind of like substance abuse vibe generate these problems. And you could go through the list of the 10 big things from all the surveys we compiled. Uh, and uh, we just took turns. Like, can you guess what big commitment generated these big questions? Mm -hmm. uh, we wouldn't have a hard time probably like answering blindly and agreeing because what, what theological commitment concretizes Christian nationalism, which one concretizes this relationship to the earth or uh, the, the deification of an economic system or. You know. Yeah. I mean, I think it can be helpful to sort of parse out different instantiations, varieties, uh, expressions of Christianity. The, the thing you started with about doing, doing God, I think is really helpful because some of the things that I'm like tempted to ask are like, you know, who, who or what is this God that returns or emerges after deconstruction? And I'm not saying that that's an illegitimate question, but when that sort of gets de-emphasized or subordinated to this question of, I don't know, action, whether it's political action or, or something else, really the, the most important part when you talk about doing God, it's like it becomes Feuerbach just turned on his head. You're really asking the anthropological question, who are we? Who do yeah. we want to be? I think they're always intertwined. I wouldn't collapse them in one into the other, but I always think they influence one another. Mm -hmm. I think maybe to kind of get at your earlier question to trip from the angle I come at it. Mm -hmm. um, I remember being in graduate school and reading Derrida and having sort of my my trust in language taken right out from underneath me and my my belief in absolute meaning and uh, understanding that language is relative and can't give us the full truth of anything. And it, you know, all, all this, these sorts of issues came to me. And then I thought to myself, well, then what's the use of language? And can we make any headway with language? And at the time I was working on my dissertation in which love was the center and love remains the center of my thinking. And if there's a word other than God that has more meanings than love, I don't know what it is. I mean, is the word love even salvageable, given what I think are distortions, but at least the multi-meaning of that particular word? And I ultimately decided I was going to try to salvage it. 
and my salvaging effort was based in part because uh, I thought there was something more fundamental than the language. I thought that word love describes some sort of sets of values and activities in the world to try to enhance value, to promote well-being. And so I thought, well, I'll try to salvage it by giving it some kind of language definition that I think does the best at least I can do at describing what seems to me even more fundamental than language, this pre-linguistic stratum of existence. And I, I do the same thing with God. Enough people still are motivated to do something, to act, to use that language, by that word God and what that word stands for in their life. Maybe, maybe it's a lot about the God of the God after deconstruction. I'm interested in thinking and talking a little bit about the after um, and how exactly that functions. I think there's there's a way of reading that that suggests that like deconstruction is sort of something that happens in a moment. And on the one hand, I think, Trip, you're totally right, right, that deconstruction in this context is not deconstruction in the sort of philosophical Derridian, you know, sort of corpus. Uh, they mean very different things as, as much as, you know, people like me might complain about, uh, you know, abusive language and such. Um, nonetheless, I think that even in that context, there's a sense to which I could see there being a perpetualness to that deconstructed impulse, right? So even in its like most conservative version, you could take deconstruction to be something like, you know, the way that progressive evangelicals rebel against the fundamentalist upbringing and the theological language of that upbringing, something on those lines would I think be like kind of the more conservative end of, of what this looks like. Even there, that would be something where, at least for me, I would want to see that as an ongoing, as a perpetual process. Um, so how do we think about this after? What what is the What does it mean to be after deconstruction? construction. So one of the things Tom and I've been doing in this is reading books by normal people that use the word deconstruction. I'll give you two short observations and some of them provoked because while we've been working on the book and Tom sends me things he's working on or mentions, have you looked at this? And then I go, I get triggered and then I have to rethink about it because of sloppy use of language and such. But there are two observations and Tom can dig in and add to this, but if someone's using the phrase deconstruction in the largely Western context right now, coming out of a place where they, where their inherited identity was deeply located in a tradition, when they say they're deconstruction or they're deconstructing, it, it's usually tied to uh, like a question, but it's a question that generates a kind of uh, hesitation of commitment or emotional involvement. Right. So when you think about the form of life for that person, deconstruction is what pulls the gap back from that religious frame or faith commitment and such to being the orientation towards the world or towards truth. Um, so part of God after deconstruction, thinking of it in a popular way 
is to actually internalize the gift of actual philosophical deconstruction, where you actually don't need finality, certainty, and uh, and the collapse of all things into a nice little box, uh, because certain truths, or, or especially ones within a religious tradition, the wisdom of a tradition, are only made manifest against a background of commitment and emotional involvement. It's only in a kind of knowing that you get by orientating yourself, risking towards hope, right? Like say of the resurrection of the crucified one or whatnot. And a lot of times the epistemology of modernity where truth in religious communities, especially the more conservative ones was so jealous of empirical kind of knowing uh, that it started to talk about its religious truth in the same way, but asking if it's true about a religious practice or a religious tradition prior to being formed by it is a lot like asking someone to marry you and promise a life of love and fidelity on the first date. Faith like love is something you must know, like you don't like know the meaning of it before you can say yes. Right. Like part of saying yes is where you do the discovery. And when reading these memoirs of people or following them online, it's that gap that comes this the shock. Like, how do I orient my life towards the ultimate, towards God, like this love that I've encountered? But then there's also these other reasons that I'm deconstructing. And so part of the invitation of sorts to a uh, postmodern sensitive process relational view is deconstruction just becomes a normal act. It's actually like the means of avoiding idolatry. That's on the Ten Commandments. Uh, But that doesn't mean uh, that you would somehow not want to risk your life with a direction. And if you're going to do it, right, why not orient it in a canonic way? Why not think of what you do with what you inherit? Uh, You know, like, so you see, like, that to me has been the interesting thing in reading memoirs and thinking about it is deconstruction is usually connected to people feeling like, the justification structure that legitimated my Christian life is now gone. WTF. Um, we don't want them to think you have to have the final answers again to, to live out your faith and such. Uh, but there could be a vision uh, that is beautiful enough that it compels you to trust the lure that as Christians, we would say might be revealed in the fidelity of Jesus to the one he calls Abba. Right. And so like, to me, there's this, it's kind of a constructive proposal, but one that invites you to re-engage existentially in a vision that's at least as beautiful uh, or loving as Jesus. I like that. I think in the philosophical sense, we're always deconstructing. And so there's no after as if we finally arrived. So in that sense, after means something like after we become aware that we're always deconstructing or should, you know, there's no, no final arrival. Uh, in the more popular sense, though, I think after deconstruction means after you realize that you can no longer have the certainty about the important things that you were told in your past as part of your tradition, and then what do you do next? There are some people um, writing books these days who talk about deconstruction, and what they really are asking their readers to do is just really return to the same tradition and faith and beliefs they had before, but just kind of with a little twist, like um, someone like Alyssa Childers, Childers, I don't know how you say her name. Uh, You know, you read her stuff and it's kind of like, she says, well, you thought the Bible had problems, but really, if you read it like this, it turns out it's all perfect. And we're not interested in that kind of thing. 
So for us, deconstructing means something a little more radical. I think one way to go at this, and Tripp mentioned memoirs that we're reading, one way to go at this is to ask more emotional, psychological, or existential questions. Uh, people who claim to be going through a deconstructive process typically are dealing with massive angst. They're afraid. They feel like they've betrayed their parents, their youth pastor, their Sunday school teacher, their best friends in the youth group, or you know, from the past. Um, there's usually a lot of psychological conflict. Now, there's also usually some psychological positivity involved. They're free from some of the crap that they've been thinking or being a part of. So it's a mixed bag uh, in terms of emotions. But I think that's a really, really important element in what I'm usually calling deconstruction that isn't usually emphasized in academic discussions, but is typically at the very center of the more popular books about deconstruction, that psychological distress people feel. Yeah. No, you, you guys raised some important points. And I know a lot of times when we're talking about theology, especially in the academy or academy adjacent spaces, it can really, it can seem removed from more direct expressions of faith, these kind of like more immediate existential concerns and so on. I guess I'm wondering how you see these kinds of conversations as that that you're hosting and that you're opening up is not just like providing a space where people can wrestle with the questions they have, you know, or, you know, hopefully not settling into a variety of theism that's indistinguishable from a progressive politics or something like this. You know what I mean? As people who are still, cause I think you, I think I have this right. You both are still involved in the church in more theological terms. Like What's your hope in terms of how that informs congregational life or or subject formation in general, that sort of thing? So that question something I have been thinking about quite a bit. And last week, I taught a week-long intensive at Luther Seminary, which did involve teaching a lot of Paul Tillich, so it was stuck in my head. Uh, but when thinking about the shifting relationship of Christianity and culture, Louis Dupree has this line that's on my lecture notes that are on my desk. So I don't actually have this memorized where he says, here lies Christianity's present predicament. In the past, religious integration was handed down by a tradition, but that tradition itself has lost its authority in the eyes of our contemporaries, including most believers. What then ought the Christian to do to survive as a genuine believer? I see no alternative, but that he or she must now personally integrate what tradition did in the past. Nothing in culture today compels our contemporaries to embrace a religious faith. If they do, they alone are responsible for allowing their faith to incorporate all aspects of their existence, hence the vital importance of a spiritual life. Uh, it's part of a larger work of like how modernity's reshaped religion to be more individual and then the legitimation crisis of knowledge of all the public institutions including religion and this kind of thing but what struck me in the way dupree presents it is the individual subject is now tasked with the responsibility that for most of human history the culture you were born or thrown in did for you right like we right. shared 
the same symbolic structure and big stories and such. And there might be times of tumult, but luckily uh, the history of winners is you make sure your culture is the one that's left, uh, you know, to orient everything. And as they have been deconstructed in these kinds of things, that Protestant principle about the individual and the self and such now is experienced with a level of intensity and anxiety for the average person that it used to take graduate school to provoke uh, in the 19th and 20th century. That's why Paul Tillich thought you needed the Protestant principle again, because the anxiety where Protestantism was birthed was a moral anxiety. And it comes out of the church's response to an ontic anxiety in the early context. But the present age is one where the anxiety of meaninglessness uh, is there. And, and that description of what the task of the individual to orient themselves spiritually towards the ultimate and things that actually means the tradition's playing a different role than it has for quite a while. And I think the, the habits of expressions of Christianity that developed when the church was culture dominant feel like the solution to a good question or a good problem is to update the system. And then it still function the same way. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we can do that anymore. I also think there's really good reasons to take the ultimacy of the divine seriously and take the fidelity of Jesus as expressive of the divine's value and that being in a community that orients itself to participate in that divine minding uh, is not just one among many options of orienting value, but inheriting a, a wisdom and a challenge that turns towards all idols, right? Like cultural forms of orientation or like, you know, how Tillich uses the notion of ultimate concern and in kind of rereading Tillich while reading with students, like different historians thinking about the current moment. Uh, we also read like Hartmont Rosa and Charles Taylor, and, and they all kind of have something like Dupree's describing, but I thought that quote was so banger. I was like, I'm just going to write this down and use it and then just hand it to ministers every so often and be like, what do you think? But if we don't, if we don't think the solution is to reoccupy culture so that people are indoctrinated in the stained glass version of our culture dominant windows in our particular cathedral, but there's still an orientation or a task to faith, then what does it look like? Hopefully part of God after deconstruction is learning how to honor the mystery that the symbol demands honor the claim it can make on orienting our life and not generate institutions or contingent collectives that function with the kind of ultimacy that they have in the past, because to do that it problematizes our orientation towards otherness and difference. That's problematic. Um, it leads to a new, a new meta narrative with an updated face and a footnote to Jesus. And I don't, that's not what we're hoping to do, but who knows? And uh, we might find out. It, it, it seems to me that with that quote that you had in the in the way that you unpacked it, there's a certain sense in which it seems like your thesis is we're all kind of Kierkegaard now. That there was this sort of unique singular experience of this, this of this existential angst in the face of of ultimacy. That this is something that's in some sense been sort of democratized. I would say trip thinks everyone is. I have no idea if people really are. And given the way Kierkegaard uh, looks at the whole stages, I think he's, uh, I would say uh, there are quite a few sacredly 
uh, supported aesthetic stages passing <laughs> off as allegiance to the crucified one. Um, but but I do think that like actually Dupree does talk about right this trajectory of the selfhood of Augustine, right, writing the first autobiography and this kind of thing, to then Luther, to then Kierkegaard, uh, like intense, and it's this dial that keeps going up. Right. Some of the responses, even religious responses, have been what was Rob Dreyer's book, The Benedict Option, or these kinds of things. It's like, though, we don't want to have to do that. So, what do we need is cultural power. Right. I think part of the energy behind Christian nationalism is the recognition that when culture and success and these other non religious uh, bonus points, essentially, for participating in religious traditions are gone, how many people? are going to make a leap of faith when it's not going to be celebrated, recognized as cost signaling of a virtuous person culturally, when it doesn't get you business connections or cultural prestige and all that kind of stuff. So I think that I experienced things that way. Um, that has been my orientation when I was in, I was a full-time clergy for 15 years. And I always thought I would think process and then when I thought about what I did, be it in liturgy and formation and confirmation, it was really centered on the existential register. And so for me, part of the constructive theological work that happens in something like God after deconstruction is to give people permission to one, hear their real questions heard, exhale, and then think, okay, they care about the philosophy, science, and all this kind of shit, and God's still as nice as Jesus in there, and now I might actually start praying for my enemies again, turn the other cheek, live on less for the benefit of others, and question whether or not my deepest allegiance that's expressed in my vocation and role in the family is more of an allegiance to an exploitative neoliberal capitalism than it is to the life, liberty, of free-loving way of Jesus that just happens to be wrapped in an American flag, right? So like that, that existential register, to me, is always been primary, but, you know, when I was in middle school, I asked questions to parents with a library and they were like, here's Dietrich Bonhoeffer, here's Paul Tillich, here's Kierkegaard. And I remember reading Sickness Unto Death when I was like eighth grade or something and no idea what it meant, but I knew I wanted to. Right. So who knows? You know, yeah, that's the, uh, that's that, the lore. That's true. That's true. So like when you say that, I go, Justin, I hope that's true. And when people are like, oh, the decline of Christianity, I'm like, great. If we lose about 70 percent, uh, then maybe only the people that actually pray for their enemies to be there. And that would be cool. So I, think I don't think a, it would lower the number of Christians that were involved in protests and such. So, I think there's another angle to address your question, because your question was about ecclesiology, church, faith communities, I thought. And I, I agree with Tripp. I like this Dupree quote. I hadn't heard that. But the conversation that Tripp has led has kind of focused on the ultimate choice of the individual, the Kierkegaardian sort of move. And of course, open relational process folks, we think individuals make choices and, you know, that's important, but we are also relational. We also think we're thoroughly related to others. And one of the issues that is coming up in conversations about deconstruction in the more popular sense is the question of what does faith community look like after deconstruction? And I think I can speak for Tripp in saying we both don't have all the answers to that. I mean, I, I would love to know how to begin a new kind of uh, communal 
effort that takes into account all of these things and then be able to take these people who send me emails and and social media messages and say, where can I find a bunch of people who think like you do? I, I wish I had answers how to put that together. But at this point, I don't have answers. I don't know what that looks like. But I do know that the relational component is essential. Yeah. Trip, you're emphasizing praxis. And then now the the sort of existential urgency or upshot of all of that. And I want to return to theology for a second, because one of the implications that I think I understand about deconstruction is the way it challenges notions of sovereignty and affirms things like democracy and multiplicity in a way that creates a problem for monotheism. What would you want to say about how we ought to think about the continued oneness of God? Is that, Or is that just not a important question given the, the the emphasis you placed on those other those other areas yeah well, about think, what you mean by oneness yeah i think what i want to center in, in the question is the, is the idea of sovereignty the god that returns after deconstruction whatever that may or may not look like what is the role of sovereignty there because i think that does have implications for the for what i was asking about the the oneness of god which which is maybe secondary to that question mm-hmm. okay two things pop to mind one is I mean, you know, that previous answer at a very existential level was thinking about how one would describe, invite, communicate, right, the Christian tradition or the community animated by Jesus uh, right in the present, uh, especially given the way it has functioned culturally and it's shifted. Um, now, when it goes to the oneness of God at, in a metaphysical question, like, I mean, I have very strong commitments to it that are probably different than even a lot of my peers. Like I, I came to process like when I was very into postmodern philosophy and stuff in undergrad and things. And I remember being fasting during Lent while basically thinking of myself as a Christian atheist and drinking bourbon at two in the morning, reading the gospel of Luke and going like, well, the good, the social sciences is good to Uh, participate in a religious tradition. So uh, given there's no way of truly assessing any of them, one where the ultimate's expressed in a crucified person who says, Abba, like a God as a loving parent, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. That's worth risking yourself to, right? The the aesthetics of it was compelling. I found Whitehead in a philosophy of religion class when something I said just because I knew the Bible and the Thomist professor seemed to be unfamiliar with it. Uh, he called me a process person, and I was like, I don't know. I'm just quoting the Bible at you. I'm a sword drill champ, Southern Baptist preacher's kid. Come on. Uh, and then I went and read it. Um, and it was after that of getting a no process thought and then getting involved in the science and religion stuff that I realized there are metaphysical assumptions that function as normative for a lot of philosophical theologians where the concept of God its plausibility structure is more based on their peer group's metaphysical assumptions that are unexamined than the engagement with the sciences and such. Getting assigned to teach through the year-long science and religion class in Edinburgh and uh, for multiple years, and then also uh, being on grant projects where you worked with scientists that weren't religious. Um, Their inability to explain things made me more and more confident about the metaphysical reality of God. 
Uh, Whitehead's kind of three turns towards his concept of God became more and more reasonable. And some of them are even stronger today scientifically and cohere with our best account of the scientific reality than it did then. Um, So like when you ask about the oneness of God, like nothing I said existentially is needs this. I just happen to be uncomfortable about how confident I am. There's an ultimate reality uh, that is no less than personal and encounters each moment in its becoming. So part of the metaphysical level, God after deconstruction, is God both receives every moment of being into God's self, uh, judges it, and then offers possibilities in the next moment. And so like every event is an event of God after deconstruction, just like you could say every event is the world in becoming. Uh, and I mean, that is the connection between the two in Whitehead. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. And I, I think that's a great, I think that's actually a really great response on the terms that you're, you're putting it forward. I, I want to sort of draw out the sort of the political ramifications of a question like that. Okay. So, um, so like the oneness of God and then playing with gods, right. That to me, I'm perfectly comfortable doing it. If we think of it in the existential or cultural level, and that's a lot of what Tillich's doing in his theology of culture. And then Caputo picks that up in different ways, but also, uh, I mean, there's a host of different people that the question of ultimacy and the inability of contingent finite reality to contain it, there's that interchange of idol and God and like all the way back to Luther's like yeah. that which you love and orient towards is your God, right? So like in that sense about the material reality or the political dimension or the sovereignty question, mm-hmm. I like totally resonate with that. But when you say like the oneness of God, like if if you ask it metaphysically, yeah. Uh, so it sounds like we're on the same page. Yes, is what is what I'm getting. I think so. Tom, what do you think about what's happening right now? I'm a monotheist. I think God exists and is personal. I don't think God is sovereign. If by sovereign you mean omnipotent, mm-hmm. I think political pluralism is compatible with monotheism. If God is not omnipotent, that, you want me to say more? Yeah, I'd love I'd love to hear more about that. If there is a God who actually exists, who's actually influential and being influenced, but can't control anyone or anything, then uh, a plurality of forms of flourishing can occur, whether that's at the micro or the macro level. And if we're talking macro level, then we're talking about uh, political levels and um, a God who is luring, calling, loving, wooing. Uh, each individual, each group, each society towards what is most uh, flourishing may lead uh, groups to different kind of uh, political structures and systems, none of which would be totalitarian, none of which would be you know, authoritarian in the sense of um, hierarchy of power, but could have very different forms uh, in their democracies, you might say. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I appreciate that. Certainly, there's a plausibility structure there. So Justin has to go in a minute, but this conversation got me thinking earlier today. And um, so I pulled out uh, one of Clayton Crockett's older books, because I I recalled there was something in there that I wanted to draw out. And there's this uh, section here I want to share, get your thoughts on it. According to Jean-Luc Nancy, the heart of the Western tradition is a Christian heart. And the only thing that can be actual is an atheism that contemplates the reality of its Christian origins, which I know you'd probably take issue with. But if Christianity is coextensive with the West, then Christianity as such is in a state of being surpassed, that is, a state of self-surpassing Christianity. 
the deconstruction of Christianity then would be to bring that self-overcoming of Christianity to an end. But would this be the end of Christianity? And if so, would it also be the triumph of Christianity? Nancy reads the essence of Christianity with Heidegger's notion of the open as an absolute transcendental of opening that would admit of no closure or closing. Can Christianity be deconstructed or is it deconstruction itself? Mm-hmm. I honestly don't know how to answer that question, but I, I just really like the question. Mm-hmm. The, uh, there are two theologians that pop into mind that postulated something similar. Mm-hmm. Um, the one most people are familiar with, probably listen to your show, is like Bonhoeffer's uh, religionless Christianity. Right, because then you're asking the question and problematizing the relationship of Christianity's culture dominance and then what is getting itself done in faith. Uh, so you get him reflecting on it and then talking about all the kind of the God of the gap slowly being explained and the justification structure for law and all these other things. And God's pushed all the way out of the world onto the cross, right? Only the suffering God can help in all the process people say amen um the so there's that but in schleiermacher's on religion in i think it's essay five uh the last chapter you know and he's talking to people that the the culture despisers people that feel like they're a bit above that folksy whatnot of religion he talks about the potential of the christ event leading to christianity evolving past itself in the essay, it's connected to ver- both a vision of ultimacy that he has, right? And it's very kind of romantic, neoplatonic, the one, all that kind of stuff. Um, but also thinking transparently about the role of the church in the West and that the culture despisers are actually part of that story and they want to t- narrate their culture themselves out of it. And he goes, well, what if this is a moment and a part of moving beyond religion, Christianity being the expression we're in right now that they have that concept to use, which he's used it for ill things and other texts, but uh, to something beyond Christianity. Uh, And then he makes this little jab. I don't remember the exact language, but he goes also, it would depend on what we mean by Christianity, right? Like uh, how that functions. But that kind of reflection, I think is really important because sometimes the anxieties that are provoked by a moment of deconstruction are really just angst about cultural change. Mm. Um, right. And so that could be like a real thing uh, worth exploring. Um, the hesitation I've had over the last four or five years about human beings being mature enough to handle this is the significant difference of the psychological well-being, the modes of cultural engagement for individuals that are born outside of any religious tradition, not Christianity. Like if you want your kid uh, to graduate high school and be less likely to have suicidal ideations and be on antidepressants, do good in grades and not be on drugs or cheat more than a lot of things is intrinsic religious participation. Uh, And those metrics don't match even in communities with the same form without orientation towards the ultimate. I I was a part of a research group looking at this and to see, you know, people doing the scientific study of religion going, what in the world's going on? 
then what happens, right? Since TV, this is one of Marshall McLuhan's like big points. It's like the breakdown of the nuclear family actually happens with TV. But then when it gets to TikTok uh, and these kinds of things that younger, uh, the younger technology is now algorithmically orienting you towards a tribe that you don't even share in the soundscape of the people you sleep with. Uh, the effect of that isolating gets problematic, right? So there are other features that may be just religion at play, but I do worry in ways I didn't worry before, either for being a dad or maybe the science stuff, or maybe just because I like talking about Jesus a lot, that humans might not know currently how to have the social infrastructure needed without what religion does. And there's like a host of books by religion scholars that are not even religious that do it. Um, uh, there was a big, like as a part of the uh, panel uh, ESAT about this, the European stu study for science and theology, one of the psychologists that presented said, the basics of cognitive behavioral therapy are things that the big five religious traditions have taught, and that's what you do. And what happens when everyone doesn't like just naturally go and do this? What is this cognitive behavioral therapy that you actually spend most of your time with and orient your relationships? Uh, it's algorithmically mediated ads that generate your identity through fear, anxiety, and that kind of thing, right? So I'm not sure like a religion undoes that, but it definitely that cultural question I ask with more fear and trembling about it than I did five years ago, let alone like when I'm like, ah, I just want to pick one uh, and this one compels me. I think I would respond to your question by saying I'm most fundamentally committed to love understood as the ongoing process of trying to promote overall well-being. And I think that Christianity has expressions, activities, ways of thinking that fit very well with that impulse. But it's not the only religion that does. And there are some folks who aren't a part of any religious tradition who can share that same goal. So will Christianity survive? I don't know. But I suspect that impulse to make the world a better place, to use the popular phrase, I, I'm committed to that. Justin, I know you have to get going. Is there anything you want to get in? No, I just want to say that, uh, thank you for this conversation. I know I've been fairly quiet during this conversation, uh, uh, unrelated work issues. Um, but, uh, I've really enjoyed this, uh, time. Uh, it's great to get to see both of you once again, and I'm really looking forward to, um, uh, zipping over to, uh, to Drew and, and seeing you all in the, uh, in the meat space in a, in a few weeks. So the meat space. Fun time. <laughs> we, we know what you mean. <laughs> that's what we do after that's the after party yeah, yeah. yeah that's when no... we really do god yeah we we do god in the meat space after ipas nice what else do you want to say about the um the event what should people know how how, how do they get there how do they sign up yeah, well, it's at uh, Drew University, which is in Madison, New Jersey. You can register on Eventbrite. The cost is $99 for the Friday and Saturday, but if you're a student, uh, you can pay $29, so you get a nice little discount, or uh, Drew alum also has a discount. You can find out that information on the Eventbrite page. And to find uh, there's actually two God After Deconstruction uh, pages on Eventbrite. One is in Denver in April. So make sure you register on the Drew uh, Eventbrite. And the event starts at 7 p.m. or I can't remember if it's 7 or 7.30, okay. February 9th. 
and concludes the uh, next evening on the 10th. And then we're all going to go out and at least people who want to go out and get something to eat afterwards. Awesome. Yeah. Justin and I will be there. It's I'm, I'm looking really looking forward to it for a number of reasons. One of them is Justin and I have never met in person. So this will be Oh, exciting. really? Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah. Like, how, are y'all like, are y'all going to like talk before about just how long you're consenting to a man hug? Because I'll just tell you that like when, when I, I haven't met someone I've spent a lot of time with on the internet in person or like right. after COVID right. and stuff, I found that trips jovialness uh, could lead to a lot longer hugs. And that I learned quickly. I should probably say something. Well, what the fuck we've met. I wasn't treated to. Well, this you're, then you just prepare yourself. What I hear there <laughs> is an invitation. Um, I, Tom was like the first like person I hadn't, you know, when I hadn't seen them in three years and he showed up at a conference in Europe mm. and, uh, and I, I warned him, you know, just like, well, look, I'm a hugger yeah. too, though, so I know. Yeah. Well, yeah, I know because you know, you're like really into love and I'm like, <laughs> I know, but so like, the thing. question is, how are you into love when you're in the meat space? And, uh, so good. All right. Um, is there anything else that you guys want to share? Any final thoughts, anything that we oh. should have asked you that we didn't? Well, can I ask you a question? Yeah. You know, if Justin's hanging on, he can answer. I mean, I listen to your podcast and occasionally you get to bits of your story. And I know more of Matt's than yours, Justin, just because Matt and I've known each other a long time. But if you went back in time, right, before your questions and ex religious experience, spiritual quest of sorts uh, led you to one of the few places you used to be able to have these kinds of conversations until recently, right? books with dead Germans in the Academy and such. Uh, was there a particular moment or question or something that sent you both uh, on a trajectory where you're, you're like, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm on team war machine. Like if you think back in time to write the version of you that might have actually like been like, Oh, there's something like God after deconstruction. Like what was that issue or question that sent you on a trajectory? Go ahead, Justin. So, for me, I think my trajectory started in a course at Eastern Nazarene College with um, uh, Eric Severson, who was a, a wonderful Levinasian, super nice guy. Um, just amazing, fascinating course. And he ended the course by giving us uh, Jacques Derrida's The Gift of Death. Uh, and we read the section on Kierkegaard in there. And I didn't understand a word of it. I didn't understand anything. But there was like something like weirdly entrancing about it, despite not getting it. And so I remember after this was my uh, spring semester senior year. And so I, um, you know, as a walking stereotype, I, I went and did some European travel after that. And so I was going to Iceland and I wanted a, a thin, light book. And I was like, I'm going to bring this book. And I'm going to figure out what the, like, what does it mean? Uh, and so I spent uh, the the next couple of weeks in various hostels in Iceland, just rereading that book like three times over two and a half weeks. Uh, didn't really, still didn't really understand anything about what was happening. But it was in that moment where I was like sort of captured by a, a way of thinking about religion and a kind of question that I'd never really encountered before. Awesome. Thanks for sharing it. I, I find these things fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does feel like don't you want like to wish there was a selfie or of you with the gift of death at a hostel and <laughs> you like put it on your wall just so that someone's like, so what's up with that? And you're like, well, that was that was the moment I finished gift of death for the third time. <laughs> that was that was the minute it, that, was, that was the moment it truly <laughs> broke me. <laughs> I had I've a, never I, recovered since <laughs> I had a student who 
it was like, this is the second time I've been assigned Tillich in a class. And even though I've read it all a couple times in both classes, I feel like it's when you finish a video game and then you go to check your account and it says 20% complete. And I was like, that yeah, is wonderfully yeah, yeah. descriptive. Like you finish the game. You're like, I did it. And then you look back and it's like, I only did like 20% of what happened, but I got to the end. Yeah. It, that's one of the things I said the other day when we, we were kicking off the Deleuze reading group, I was like, listen, I've read this book once a couple of years ago. I think maybe I got 25, 30% of it. So I'm here for another 30%. <laughs> Awesome. Well, I got to run, but thank you so much. Uh, this was a, this was a fun time. Oh, thanks, Justin. Matt, you didn't answer the question though. Uh, all right, Justin, I'll see you later and I'll answer the question. Um, I think for me, it was a combination of things. It was a sort of combination of personal moral failures combined with a earnest pleading to God for, for help and God didn't come through. At the same time, I was sort of, because of that, I was kind of questioning, maybe you could say in the colloquial sense, I was doing a deconstruction thing. I was at the beginning of that. And then I read, um, it's like a, it's like a cliche, but I, I read um, Rob Bell's book. Velvet Elvis? No, not that one. <laughs> Love Wins. And it wasn't the content of the book that was uh, transformative for me. It was more like the permission and the, to like, hey, there's a whole tradition here with lots of different ways of answering these, these kinds of questions. And that kind of opened up the whole can of worms for me. And then at one point, somebody invited me to a Pete Rollins, like speaking event. And I went there and he was doing the whole, his whole rap about, you know, when, when during the cross event, you know, the temple is, is torn. And then, you know, they go into the temple and, and what's inside, nothing, absolutely nothing. And um, I know I'm kind of like making light of it now, but at the moment, that was like a revelation for me. And I remember thinking about it for several hours and then just being alone, alone at home. And I had kind of a, like a religious experience. It was just like, I passed from seeking transcendence into the imminent plane. If that makes sense. I was like, I'm, I'm here. And like this, this is the afterlife or something like this. And it was just like, I don't know, since then I've just been interested in radical theology and other things. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I it yeah, that makes sense because there's a uh, there's always like cool origin stories for anyone that get becomes a nerd. Uh, well, okay, not for analytic philosophers. I will take it back, but <laughs> true ones that read continental philosophy, uh, and not because they have to. There tends to be an origin story where you're like, oh, it's fascinating. And then if they're into that kind of stuff and raise religious questions, there's always. Yeah, and I'm always interested in people who get into, who go into like the continental side of things, who don't have those kinds of deep existential questions. So they just like, how do you just land, you know, in in, in doing this kind of stuff? That just strikes me as very bizarre. But everyone has well, the human work. species can do that. It's I, amazing yeah. how bizarre we can get. Very adaptable. Oh yeah. All right, man. Um, thanks again. This is great. <laughs> <laughs>